All right, if you guys have been with us, we've been going through the book of Daniel, and we've been through Daniel 1 through 6, and I want to tell you today, gone are the fiery furnaces, gone are the lion's dens, the eating only vegetables, all the stories that many of us heard growing up as kids, those are gone, and things are about to get really interesting. I'm talking like flying goats, interesting. That's chapter 8, though. We're not going there. We're in chapter 7. We've got our own interesting text to tackle. Um, And as we do, I want you to know, though, even though it's interesting, even though it's kind of a little out there with some of the things, a little different than what we're used to, that doesn't mean that it's not profitable. This is God's Word, and He's got a message for us today. And really, it's the same message we've been hearing all throughout Daniel, that even when things look really dark, even when things look really bleak, God is still on the throne. He's still in control. In fact, today what we're going to see is um, he's the one who gives the kingdom to us, even when things look really bleak and really hard. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Always good to know the context of where we are, so let me say that while I give you a little time to turn there in your Bibles. We are in um, a spot in Daniel's life where he is now a much older man. Um, Daniel is older than when he was eating only vegetables and that. In fact, all of Israel is experiencing a lot of things going on. The temple in 586 B.C. was destroyed, which was a huge thing to them. And this is 30 years after that. Probably the most important part of the context for us to realize is that they're in exile. What does that mean? That they're away from their home. They've been ripped from their land. They've been ripped from their community. They've been ripped from their country, from their friends, from everything. And they've been taken to Babylon. And the temple, the symbol, the spot where God meets with man, the spot where his presence dwelled with his people has been destroyed and all hope seems to be lost. I think it's hard for us to imagine just how devastating this must have been. Unless you're a refugee in this room, we just don't really have a paradigm for this. Imagine, though, that someone did come into our community and just ransack maybe our state Maybe after last night, maybe the state of Pennsylvania comes in. (laughs) Sorry to all you Michigan fans. And just ransacks our state, and bear with me here, but they come into your home, this invading army, and they yank you out of your home, and they say, that's mine now. And you, you're coming with us, and you're coming back to our cities, and you're going to learn our language, and you're going to have to assimilate into our way of life. This is what exile was like for them. They lost everything. It was a horribly hard, difficult time. And if we don't understand that, we miss the little tiny things in our text. Like verse 9, it talks about God's throne being a wheelchair. That it has wheels underneath it and it's able to move and go to different places. Why would this be encouraging to Israel? It'd be encouraging because they had to leave. They had so much hope that Jerusalem was going to be the spot where they were going to meet with God, that God's temple was there, and when it's destroyed, God gives them this picture of his throne, but it's his throne not stationary, but on wheels. He's saying, I go with you wherever you are. I won't abandon you. There's no place you can go, no height, no depth that I can't go as well. God is ever-present. But in the New Testament, we see that God's God's description of his throne and his temple isn't on wheels. It's on legs. For us today, that's where the temple is. It's on your legs and my legs. God's presence, if we are in Christ, dwells within us. You guys realize that we are the temple today. 
That God sends us out into the world to reflect him, to draw people to him. One of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity is the priesthood of all believers. It says that we're all to be priests. It means a priest is someone who mediates between somebody and God. It's, it's the one who intercedes, who draws people and reflects the presence of God to them. How are we doing with this crossroads? How are we reflecting God in the city of Grand Rapids? Do your neighbors, when you talk about parenting or work or politics, are they seeing Christ? Are we doing a good job of being the temple sent out into the world? All right, I'm already preaching a little bit. We haven't even read the text. Let me, let me back up a little bit here. Here at Crosswords, we like to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you are able and willing, please stand. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was laying in bed. He wrote down the substance of the dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was the second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts. It had ten horns. You see the interesting part that I was mentioning. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little horn. And it came up among them. The three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This little horn had eyes like a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before them. Thousands upon thousands attended to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking, and the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Go ahead and have a seat. We'll look at the rest later. Does it sound to anyone else like we're back in Revelation right now? <laughs> this is an apocalyptic text right here. This is um, just like Revelation. So much of uh, Revelation and Daniel, the second half, overlap here. Apocalyptic meaning God's just speaking to his people, showing them what's to come, but he's doing it through picture form rather than words here. 
What else does this remind you of? Does this bring anything else back to mind? Daniel chapter 2. Daniel's always kind of having these mirror chapters. Some of you guys are nodding your head, remembering Daniel chapter 2. Some of you guys are turning back in your Bibles, trying to see what it was. Daniel chapter 2, we had Nebuchadnezzar having this dream. And we see this statue, right, with a head of pure gold, a chest and arms of silver, belly and thigh of thighs of bronze, right, and legs of iron with feet that are iron and clay. And then we see this giant rock come down and smash it all. This is, this is almost a retelling of this, but it's more than a retelling of this. It's a ratcheting up. This is more extreme now. We have these beasts that are coming through. In fact, I would argue if this is a retelling of anything, this passage today is a retelling of Genesis 1 through 3. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2, we see what? We see God creating. We see God taking and making order out of chaos. Everything is given um, a name, everything by its kind and by its type. There's structure and there's harmony. Then there's mankind who's put in the garden and his job is to rule and subdue, which really means to tend, to do everything, to create flourishing for this world. Look at Genesis 1.24, if you will. Keep your finger in Daniel. First chapter of the Bible just says this. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. What do you hear repeated? According to their kinds. Good. Some people are awake right now. You guys are tracking with me, right? Now what do we see here? We see this perversion in Daniel. It's a retelling of Genesis 3 where mankind decides they don't just want to be in the image of God. They want to be God. They strive for power. And then everything begins to crumble. And here we see kind of the fulfillment of where that leads. The best that mankind can bring and how it's really just a reflection of the fall And it does it symbolically. These beasts are disfigured. There's death and there's killing, but it's more than that. They're not according to their kind anymore. Notice that none of these beasts is the way that God designed things. We've got a lion with eagle's wings. Two different categories, right? The beast of the ground, the beast of the air. We have a deformed bear where it's kind of hunchbacked and all that. We have a four-headed leopard with four wings. We have iron teeth inorganic material on an organic beast. They're mutants. This isn't the way that God designed the world to be. This isn't how it was structured, and yet this is how they are. And in fact, it tells us this, if you don't believe it from that, where do they come from? Where do these beasts come from? A little louder. You don't have to be timid here. The sea, thank you. They come up out of the sea. Genesis 1, what do we see? We see God hovering over the waters, over the chaos, bringing shalom, bringing peace and order to what's otherwise chaotic. The sea always represents evil. The sea always represents disorder disorder and chaos. I'm sorry to all of you water sports people, but that wasn't how they did it back then. The Jewish people were not big water sports people. This was chaos. In fact, I I guess I could make a case for times changing a little bit. Will Weatherhead and I once snuck 
onto a Hasidic Jewish beach. And I don't know if you've ever like walked into the bathroom of the opposite gender by mistake, but you like take one step in and you just instinctively know I do not belong here. And if there's people, their face tells you you do not belong here as well. This was that times 10. I kid you not, there was a 10-foot fence that ran all the way along the beach. It went all the way into the water, and on the side of it, it had giant Hebrew letters that I presume said, keep out. But my Hebrew was a little rusty, and Will Weatherhead and I, we were on this obsessive quest to find a surfboard. And so we waded out into the water and went around this giant 10-foot fence And what was like an empty beach behind us, suddenly it was full, just teeming with people, all in full-length, black, modest swim attire, curls down the side of their face. And I'm telling you, the whole thing just stopped. The entire beach froze. (laughs) Babies stopped crying. (laughs) It was like, you know when a flash mob goes there? It was like they pre-coordinated how to make this as awkward as possible. Like a flash mob, they dance and they like sing and do all that. This flash mob, they just froze and glared and judged. And so Will and I, we decided, neither one of us liked to not belong. And so we decided, you know what, we're going to press through this thing. So in our brightly colored board shorts, no shirts on, we just walked in like we owned the place. Because we saw out of the corner of our eye the one thing that didn't belong as much as us or seemed to not belong as much as us, a surfboard. And so we asked these Hasidic Jewish people doing a little race relations here between us if we could borrow their surfboard. They told us no one on the planet could ride these waves because they were so messy, and we promptly proved them wrong. (laughs) All that to say, times are changing, but in Daniel's day, no way were people doing water sports. Back then, the sea was completely chaos. That's all that it was. These beasts represent Deformity, right? The sea, chaos, killing, apparent power. They're divergent from everything that we learn about in the garden and how it's supposed to be. A clear separation from what God intended. You see, people were supposed to bring peace and shalom, but these beasts that represent human kingdoms are just using power to conquer and create death and chaos. As we see at each of these beasts, they represent a different nation. God's giving us a glimpse. These are empires, if you will. God's giving us a glimpse, and Daniel a glimpse, of what's to come, not just for Israel, but for the entire world. These beasts are the culmination of human misuse of power, crushing other nations and people group, the exact antithesis of what God created. Mankind, we've abdicated our role. We were supposed to be under shepherds, under God, shepherding this world and flourishing. We were supposed to use our power to create order, and these beasts just crave power, and will get rid of order, and will destroy in order to get it. So what are these beasts? Beast number one, let's look at them. Verse four with me. The first beast was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. Everyone back then would have known this one. I'm telling you, everyone knew what the legal was. Come on. I love it. Thank you. I needed that. Thank you. (laughs) Old Testament prophets referred to Nebuchadnezzar as a lion. Jeremiah does. 
And Jeremiah and Ezekiel also refer to him not just as a lion, but also an eagle. This is Nebuchadnezzar. This is Babylon. In fact, if you go to Iraq, which is modern-day Babylon, you'll actually see statues of lions that date all the way back to Babylon. This is the symbol of the nation. This is Babylon, beast number one. Beast number two, look at verse five. And before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. So this bear was like kind of one shoulder much higher than the other. This is Medo-Persia. Two nations that come together forming this empire, but one is stronger than the other, hence the lopsidedness. Beast number three. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given the authority to rule. The leopard is fast, and even faster, it's got four wings on its back. This leopard represents probably the fastest military campaign ever, Alexander the Great, Greece. By the time that he was 32 years old, he had already conquered the entire known world at that time. In fact, there's a great quote from history that says this, when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, when Alexander stopped and looked and saw all that he had conquered, all that he created, he sat down and he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. That was all he knew was power and conquering and domination. And so when that was suddenly off the table because he had done it all, he wept. He had no more purpose. Even beyond this, we see the four heads. And this is what happens when Alexander dies. His empire is given to four different rulers. The third beast is Greece. Beast number four. Verse seven. After that in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. This is where it gets a little harder. Even picturing this beast, like a lion with eagle's wings, okay, I can kind of do that. Four heads on a leopard, strange, but I can picture that. What do you do with this one? It has iron teeth. It has ten horns. It's big enough to trample. Can you picture that in your mind? I did a Google image search because <laughs> I'm very scholarly. And... Uh, you don't have to do it right now, by the way, too. You don't have to get out your phones. But if you do Google image search, I'll just tell you what happens. Daniel 7, you're going to see artists doing all kinds of depictions of this. And sometimes it's like there's a T-Rex with 10 horns on top of its head. There's a dragon like Smog from The Hobbit. People don't know what to do with this. They can't even picture what it is. And knowing what it represents is a little bit harder, too. And I think that that's intentional. A lot of people, and I would agree, think this is Rome. Conquered with iron, trampled everything underfoot. Um, absolutely, it seems to fit. And I'm sure during Jesus' time, they thought this was Rome. But there's also this bit about the ten horns. And what does that represent? Horns represent strength, right? If you don't believe me, jump in the ring with a bull. See what end of the bull you try to avoid. It's the horns, right? Horns represent strength and kingdoms. Strength, this is what's going to happen is out of this one, we're going to see multiple other kingdoms come up. But ten represents fullness. And so it's the full number of kingdoms. It doesn't mean ten exactly. It's the full number that God has ordained. And so I think that while this is Rome, it just represents empire in general. 
all of the kingdoms that are going to come and oppress and do all that. And eventually this thing culminates with this tiny little horn that comes up and uproots the other ones, and it's the complete opposite of God's order. It's blasphemous, and it just seeks to destroy. This is a scary scene, guys. Daniel, if you remember, Daniel's the one who just like walked into the lion's den like it was no big deal. Daniel's the one who's just like, I'll eat only vegetables. He's got that kind of faith. Daniel reads this, and he's afraid. Look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel said, my spirit was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Verse 19, he describes the beast as exceedingly terrifying to him. Verse 28, this is the last verse in our passage. Daniel sums it all up. He says, here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. Daniel, who wasn't afraid of lions, has his face just drained of all of its color. This unflappable kid who when Nebuchadnezzar was putting all of the wise men to death, he just walks in and he's like, I'll take a stab at that uh, dream. Let me try to interpret it for you. This guy was fearless and yet his face is drained of the color here. This is a scary vision of what is to come. It's a scary vision of the fact that God's people will always experience persecution. Even us today. It's a scary picture of what mankind looks like when we misuse our power. Why does this matter? This is our nation, right? This is our world that we live in. Nation crushing other nations. The haves and the have-nots. The poor and the rich. The strong and the weak. But the problem that's most disturbing is the strong eat the weak in this world. And then we just say, oh, it's natural selection. Because this is not how God created us to use power. We were put in the garden and we were to use power to tend and to create flourishing and now we use it to create oppression. Guys, this is what we've done to our world since Genesis 3. Let me ask you today, it's us even as individuals building many kingdoms. Who are you willing to walk on to get what you want? Who are you willing to let go without so that you can gain a little bit more? Sadly, I'm not sure that America is Israel in this passage. I'm not even sure that the church is Israel in this passage. So what's God's answer to all this? We're going to see something awesome here because these beasts seem like they're the center of the story. They seem like they're really, really powerful, but it's kind of an illusion. Look with me at verse 4. I'm just going to give some of the highlights here. Who really has the power here? The first beast, we see this lion uh, with the wings of an eagle. I watched and its wings were torn off. Who tore the wings off? But the mind of a human was given to it. Who's giving it these things? Verse 5, the beast is told, get up and eat. Who's telling? Who's giving commands to this scary beast? Verse 6, the beast is given authority to rule. Who's giving the authority here? You see, these beasts look really scary, but who's really in charge? Look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is courtroom language here. God showing up. His clothing was white as snow. His hair on his head was white like wool. Everything pure contrasted with the evil of the beasts. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. That's judgment language. The beasts are about to get what's coming to them. Thousands upon thousands attended to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. 
10,000 is the largest number in antiquity. It's 10,000 times 10,000. The court was seated. Again, we see the courtroom and these beasts needing to appear before God for judgment. And the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. You guys note, just like that, it's over. There's no cosmic war here. No big battle scene, no anything. It's just, boom, it's done. So often we think of this world and we think it's like good versus evil. That's religious dualism. Two equal parties, good versus equal, evil, slugging it out. Who's going to win? We don't know. This is not Christianity. Christianity says when God wants to eradicate evil, he just says the word and it's done. God offers his judgment here and boom, it's done. The beasts are slayed. It puts the power of the beasts in perspective. They seem really powerful, but it's like comparing the power of a firecracker to an atomic bomb. God is on the throne. These beasts report to him. And I know this might be a hard pill for some of you in this room today. I'm sure it was for Daniel as well. God, if you can stop this, why don't you? God, if you can just snap your fingers and say the time is now, why don't you just say the time is now? The text today doesn't give us the why behind that. But it does give us something better. Just hang on with me for one second here. It gives us something even better than that because it seems like the focus of the passage is on the beasts. But the focus of Daniel 7, just like the rest of the Bible, is not on the beasts. It's on God. He's the centerpiece. He's the center star in the story. The focus will always be on him. Even though these evil empires have enslaved Israel, they've oppressed them, they seem to be winning, they're going to be judged. Even though Satan is attacking us today, he's going to be judged. He's going to be thrown in the lake of fire. Passages like this get us off that CNN roller coaster, right? What's North Korea going to do? What's ISIS planning? I'm not saying we be naive to these things or we don't plan defenses, but it gets us off that roller coaster where we think everything is dependent on them and us. God's on the throne. This is the message of Daniel. It seems like all hope is lost. Israel has been conquered. Israel has lost their homes. They've lost the temple. But God is present and he's ultimately on the throne for them and he's on the throne for us. He's with us. All hope isn't lost. Even if we're oppressed. Even if we're crushed. He's going to judge the world and he's going to make it right. Our job as Christians actually gets easier when governments of the world look beastly and dark. It's against a black backdrop that light looks the brightest, right? So does this mean that we don't fight injustices? Does this mean that we don't pray for peace? No. Absolutely not. But we fight and we pray with hope because we know that we have a judge who's going to take care of evil once and for all. We fight because someone else fought first. And that's the most beautiful thing in this whole passage. Look with me at verse 13. But before we do, I need some help. I know this is a big room. So I need some loud-voiced people. I need a few verses read. I'm going to tell you right now, there's no hard words. There's no names that you don't know how to pronounce. 
So step in with confidence, but I need a few people to read some verses for me. Can I get some volunteers? Mark 14, 62. Okay. Matthew 26, 64. Matthew 20, 28. Awesome. Luke 9, 22. Luke 9, 22. Awesome. You guys did a lot better than the Saturday night, I'll just tell you, too. <laughs> they came around. They did great. I don't want to say too much. They did great. Smaller crowd. All right, verse 13. Look with me. Daniel 7, verse 13, while everyone's turning to those pages. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led in his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Note the contrast here. We've got the beasts that are these deformed, they're mutants coming up, and now we have one who's like the Son of Man, human in appearance. And where does he come from? From the sea? No. He comes with the clouds. This is the way that Yahweh travels. This is the way that God travels. He travels with the clouds. In fact, one theologian says if Daniel 7.13 does not refer to an appearance of deity, of God, it's the only exception in over 70 passages in the Old Testament. This is someone, this is a picture of a divine figure showing up. Let's see who it is. Who has Mark 14, 62? Rick, was that you? Beautiful. Matthew 26, 64. You hear the Son of Man part there? Coming on the clouds? Wonderful. Matthew 20, 28. Wonderful. Thank you. Luke 9, 22. So who goes by the title Son of Man in the Bible? Who rides on the clouds? Jesus, thank you guys. He comes on the clouds, Acts 1.11. Jesus goes up with the clouds and we're told that he's going to come back the same way. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. The Son of Man. 51 times in Scripture, Jesus is called the Son of Man. Any guess at how many people call Jesus that? One. Jesus. This is his favorite nickname for himself. But nicknames don't always mean something. I had a best friend growing up, and we called him Ruru, and no one knew why we called him Ruru. Is that what Jesus is doing here? No. This nickname is meant to communicate. He's telling us what he's come to do. He's telling the disciples who he is and what he came to accomplish. 
So let's look at what it is. Daniel 7 tells us what the Son of Man's going to do. Verse 14, it says, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all people of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. N.T. Wright claims really convincingly that the reason that Jesus is receiving all of this is because He's the one who slayed the beast. Jesus conquers sin, death, and the devil. And He does it through His life, death, and resurrection. Hebrews 10.12 says, But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for His sins, for sins, His life, He sat down at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1.20, God worked in Christ that when He raised Him from the dead, He seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus defeated the beast. It's the how that's shocking. It's the how that the disciples couldn't comprehend. They were ready for a conquering king to come overthrow Rome. They weren't ready for the how he was going to defeat the beast. Look at verse 21. Oh, I'm sorry. Before we go there. How does Jesus do it? He constantly mixes, when he talks about being the son of man from Daniel 7, the suffering servant imagery. In fact, he talks to Nicodemus and he says the Son of Man must be lifted up like a snake on a pole. Basically, he's saying that he must be lifted up so that anyone who looks on him will have eternal life. He is going to defeat the beast by sacrificing himself. This is the complete antithesis of the little horn in our passage today. Look at verse 21. This is what we would describe as the Antichrist, the exact opposite of Christ. Verse 21, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people, and he was defeating them. This horn tries to exalt itself. It speaks boastfully. It tries to elevate itself. It tries to get high by making everyone else low. It's trying to seek, kill, and destroy the people of God. Jesus, on the other hand, came not to seek, kill, and destroy, but to be killed. He came so that we could have life abundantly, not so that he could elevate his name. He gave away all authority. In fact, he empowers the disciples. He goes up into heaven in Acts 1, right? And he entrusts the very mission in the kingdom of God to these 12 disciples. He gives away authority. He's the lion who was slain. He's a king who was willing to die for his people. Did any of these beasts have kings that would die for their people? Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, were they dying for their people? Domitian, no. All of them demanded sacrifice. But Jesus sacrifices himself so that we can be exalted. This little horn wages war against us, but Jesus takes the blows for us. He's the greatest king that's ever lived. And why? Why does Jesus do this? Look at verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Who gets the kingdom? We do. The people of God. Jesus defeats the beast and we get the kingdom. Look at verse 21. As I looked, the little horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of Most High. And it came time when the saints possessed the kingdom. Verse 21 says this, the kingdom under heaven shall be given to the people of God of the saints of the Most High. 
we get the kingdom. Jesus gets the spoils, but we're co-inheritors with him. Jesus died not so that his name would be exalted, but so that we could inherit the kingdom. That's the graciousness of our king. That's why he has the name above all names. That's why at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. There's no one like him. But what kind of kingdom did he come to bring? What kind of kingdom does he give to us? One like Rome? No. That's just it. The four beasts invite you to be a part of kingdom that's all about man. It's a Genesis 3 kingdom. It's all about conquering. Prove yourself. Make a name great for yourself. Get power. Domination. But the kingdom of the God is the exact opposite. It's about giving it away. Jesus comes down off the mountain. He gives the Sermon on the Mount. And he comes down and he's like, I'll show you what the kingdom of God looks like. And what does he do? He heals the blind man. He heals the leper. He casts out demons. He calms the storm. He brings shalom to chaos. He forgives sins. This is God's view of power. Give it away. Use your influence but use it for flourishing. Use it for good. Use it to benefit other people, not to build up a mini kingdom for yourself. God invites us back to the garden in terms of how we view power in the kingdom. We're invited to be agents of reconciliation. People who bring shalom to chaos. How? With a message that God is on his throne. He's bigger than the beasts. He's more powerful than them and that he sacrificed himself for us. So let me ask you, Crossroads, will we be people who view power like Genesis 1 and 2? It's for the world. It's for betterment of others. Or people who view it like Genesis 3 where it's all about us. Like empire. Like Adam and Eve before they fell or after they fell. We view power like Christ. We have the kingdom there's no need to prove anything anymore. There's no need to try to prove how great you are or make a big name for yourself. Just a motivation to go out and tell the whole world how great this king is who slayed the beasts and has given us the kingdom. Crossroads, will you be blessed to be a blessing to the city of Grand Rapids and beyond? Let's pray. God, we just read it a second ago, but your word says in Matthew 20, 28 that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God, let us in this room have that mindset, a mindset that says we're not here to be served, we're here to serve. God, let us use the rich resources that you have given us any influence that we have, not for making our names great, but in worship to the one who slayed the beast, is on the throne, and has given us the kingdom. There truly is no one like you. You are a king like no other, and we just declare it, and we just worship your name, Lord. Help us to be blessed to be a blessing. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.